Okay, it's time to start. So, uh, my, uh, my name is Gary Cage. I am to announce that, so we've got it on the tape. And um, I'm with the Foothills Church of Christ. Just talking with a brother over here a few minutes ago. I've been there for, coming up on 39 years, the same congregation. So, we have Bruce there who... Uh, Outstrips me a little bit, right? <laughs> How many years, Bruce? Forty-five. It's Forty-five years. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing. Um, like to uh, thank Pepperdine for this uh, Harbor lectureship and all the work that goes into it. I've organized a few little things in my life, and uh, I know what that organization uh, takes. Um, are some more folks coming in? I'll wait. <laughs> well, maybe not. Okay. No, <laughs> boy, this is Plank. Uh, a few years ago, I got a manila envelope in the mail from uh, a rabbi, the chief rabbi of the largest uh, conservative synagogue in Chicago. I'd never heard of him, looked him up, found out that he was a film critic, uh, besides being a rabbi uh, for the Jewish World Daily. And uh, inside the envelope, uh, besides the letter, were uh, several articles that he had written on the Holy Spirit in Judaism. So this came out of nowhere, and uh, so... I read the articles. I, uh, he didn't even give me contact information. I looked him up um, on the web and was able to email him. He and I have uh, become friends. Well, we continue to uh, communicate uh, over the last few years. And uh, he uh, uh, had some certain worries about the uh, influence of Ruachic Judaism. The influence of the Holy Spirit movement in conservative Judas. And uh, he had read uh, my book, which I'll talk about a little bit later on, and uh, had quoted it and uh, wanted to uh, communicate with me. Since then, he's come to Reno, and I've gotten to know him. We're friends, and I enjoy it very much. In fact, the other day, I uh, just got some help from him on Jewish mysticism. But um, the title of this topic, of uh, this uh, talk this afternoon is My 40-Year Journey, more like 43-Year Journey, with the Holy Spirit. And I want to start out with that journey and then bring it to uh, a point. I was raised uh, in the Church of Christ, about as mainstream as you can get, a little town outside of Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, I've had a great church experience. Lots of great preachers, lots of uh, great experiences. The view of the Holy Spirit when I was growing up was a very modest sort of thing. Um, the uh, view, uh, usually when someone would ask about the Trinity or the Holy Spirit, one of the congregations that I was in when I was a child, you'd usually get something like, uh, well, that's a tough subject. A lot of people hold different views on that, and people would speculate a little bit, and uh, often people would say, you know, it's just, it's just deep. It's a deep 
issue. Um, sometimes I hear people say that uh, we've been scared of the Holy Spirit. It, that wasn't my experience at all. My experience was it was just uh, a big subject, maybe a little bit over our heads, and uh, not central to the faith. And that uh, we could have various uh, views, sort of like uh, Stone and Campbell did. And we could uh, proceed to live uh, together in the king. However, as some of you in here who know me uh, know, uh, I love a good challenge. And so uh, to say something like, that's a deep question. Oh, that, uh, that's the gong. Mm -hmm. Well, I was a kid, you know, uh, grew up, went off to a Christian college, uh, several of them. But in 1974, I decided I was going to pin my ears back and go for it. And so I started uh, studying the Holy Spirit, and I went at it the same way I go in every biblical topic. I started with the Old Testament and just simply read the Old Testament. And you go through and you find everything you can. You take a lot of notes. Uh, then you uh, go to the New Testament, do the same thing, take a lot of notes, pray about it, you talk to people about it, you worry about it, you meditate about it. The view that I had been handed as a young man was uh, this. And I think in 1974, if you had asked me, I would have said, well, it looks like this. When a person is baptized into Christ, they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and it's a seal. And uh, it identifies us with God that we belong to Him. And somehow it works in our lives, but that's about all I know. Uh, we're God's children, maybe we don't need to know it all. And that uh, God works in, in our lives. That was my view, and uh, I heard various uh, other views that people had, and and I was interested in how this thing went. Now, I want to make a statement here. Um, as honestly as I know my own heart, I simply had no dog in this fight, as they say back in Tennessee. <laughs> I had no agenda. I really, really didn't care uh, where this thing went. I try to make that a theme in my life, uh, to go where the evidence leads me. And... Um, that can uh, be problematic, as I'll point out a little bit later on. But um, I have prayed many, many times in my life for uh, manifestations of the Spirit to uh, work miracles, uh, speak in tongues, to uh, uh, be blessed with uh, any or all of uh, the gifts of the Spirit that we read about uh, in, in Scripture. I still pray for it. I'm still open to it. Uh, as some of you know, I'm quite willing to say I might be wrong. I'm always open to uh, a better way and, and seeing the truth more clearly. But around 1980, and some of you know this kind of thing, you're studying, you're studying, studying, six, seven years have gone by, and one day it seemed to me the lights came on. And I came to a view on the Holy Spirit. Um, this seemed to me to be the simplest, most consistent biblical view out there. And so um, I began to uh, try to frame it and uh, basically it is this. Now be careful. Alright. For God 
to indwell someone with the Holy Spirit means that they are usually a prophet who is able to work miracles to confirm that message. And that God has only done that sporadically throughout his dealings with human beings. I say be careful because some of you are thinking, well, that's the old view. Well, not exactly. And we'll look at that maybe a little bit later on. But in other words, uh, for a person to have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit means they've been set apart for a prophet, to be a prophet, to get revelations from God, and to speak that revelation to people, and to accept all the slings and capitals that come with it, and to usually uh, work miracles or predict the future or things like that that would confirm that this message really is from God. Um... It looks to me like uh, this is who Jesus was, that he had the Holy Spirit, John 2, and that he worked miracles. It confirmed his message. It looks like what the apostles, early Christians and prophets did. And they left behind for us the teachings of Jesus, mainly the kingdom, not the Bible. The Bible is a record of those, and we need to maybe make that distinction. We'll come to that later on. But it's a record of that very thing, this very unique and special moment when the Holy Spirit burst upon the scene and left with us the kingdom of Christ, which is what we have uh, today. Now, the title of the speech is, well, that's a, I call that an alternate view. Well, in 2018, it is. That's not the view that most evangelical Christians hold. It's not even views that most uh, Catholics hold. It's not the view that most members of churches of Christ hold. It's a different view. It has been expressed a couple of times in our fellowship, in our heritage, but rarely, and it was not Stone and Campbell's View. Uh, so, as is my wont, I begin to uh, test this because uh, there's no such thing as certainty. You're always looking at uh, where did I go wrong? I've got plenty of people in my life who are willing to tell me where I'm wrong. <laughs> and I beg for it. I beg for it. I want to know. And one of the ways I tested it was I decided to uh, read. Uh, as much intertestamental literature as I possibly could. Uh, I personally think that the uh, Jews were deeply influenced by the Persians. And uh, the religion of that time was called Zoroastrianism. There are some who think that the word Pharisee came from Farsa, the language of Pers Persia. Could be. And it looks like there are a lot of connections. So I read as much Zoroastrian literature as I can could. I noticed something there. In fact, uh, one of the interesting things you note there is that you have this uh, evil angel, Spantamani, who is counterposed to this holy spirit, Spantamani, and that this uh, dualism, this fight is going on. Uh, but more than that, for the spirit to indwell, even in Zoroastrianism, for the spirit to indwell, to indwell someone meant that that person 
was imbued with uh, prophetic powers and or miracles. That's not the big thing. How about the, how about the Greeks and the Romans? Same thing. I course through as much, and there's a lot of Greek Roman uh, literature, Greek and Latin literature, and I course through as much of it as I possibly could. Same thing. To have the Spirit of God in you is to have special powers or to be amused or to uh, channel some sort of message from God. Same thing in the rabbis. And the rabbis are extremely strong about this. So also the Targumim, which are Aramaic translations of uh, the Old Testament. The Apocrypha, the Pseudepigrapha. Now someone could charge me with finding what I wanted to find, but I really didn't. I, I tried to see what is the spectrum. Now here's the point, see. When Jesus was born, all of those things were at play in his culture. And so... If he's going to speak in these terms, one would think he's using the terminology the way people use it around him. Here's the thing. I found it monolithic. That is, all of the cultures were basically saying the same kind of thing. This, uh, this uh, the church that I'm a part of, uh, the Foothills Church of Christ in Reno, actually encouraged this. We had Bible studies. It eventuated in uh, this book right here, where I've tried to uh, lay out uh, that kind of thing. I had a professor at a Christian college one time say, I'm going to read a book like that. So I said, how about the smaller version? And uh, so, uh, but it's a source book. I've just tried to lay, lay it out there. And so uh, uh, the books were uh, published. But let me make this statement before we move to something else. My journey, as in the title, has been anything but smooth. I actually thought that folks would say, um, at worst, Gary, I hear your point of view, but that just couldn't be right, and here's what's wrong with it. Uh, and at best, a few people say, hmm, I'll take that into consideration. Maybe you're right. But it's an emotional issue. I've had people throw Bibles start crying both the room both the church over a topic like this it's sensitive um, that's been my journey I'm still on it I'm still open to uh, looking that uh, this thing could be uh, wrong uh, now let me uh, make a couple of points here and that is that uh, so we move on to another section uh, I think that we, as brothers and sisters, can tolerate wide divergence of opinions and views on these things. Uh, there are people that hold all kinds of different views uh, on the Holy Spirit, and uh, nearly all of them I'm fine with. Uh, that's what you think. I believe that's very uh, workable. Everything from uh, people believing that they can raise the dead through the power of the Holy Spirit or uh, heal people, all the way down to people believing that the Holy Spirit is just a gentle influence in their lives. There are all kinds of ways that people view it, and uh, we should be uh, okay with that. I think that a lot of people's uh, use of the Holy Spirit is, uh, uh, when they talk about it, 
is uh, really gets down to just a, a matter of uh, terminology in uh, many cases. I'm looking for my uh, notes here. Um, it just uh, gets down to a matter of terminology. Um, and uh, a lot of their views are fairly harmless. Uh, have you ever uh, seen somebody in need and maybe you're in a hurry and you pass them up and then you felt guilty? <coughs> You've had that happen, haven't you? I think a lot of people say, well, the Holy Spirit told me I should have helped that person. Mm -hmm. Sure. Goes on all the time. People uh, have uh, those kinds of feelings. Um, there was a, a guy named Stephen Parker uh, several years ago who uh, uh, is a, um, looking for my notes here, um, who is a um, uh, psych psychologist, a psychotherapist, and also a Pentecostal. And he uh, wrote a book on how in his fellowship they tried to sort out whether the Holy Spirit's actually told someone to do something or not. Nice little 150-page book. And uh, in this, um, I'm looking for some of my notes here. I may have to do it. Um, in this, he says that, uh, uh, you know, well, when somebody comes up with something, we ask them to bring it to the fellowship. It might lead to... Uh, they're needing to uh, talk it over with uh, other uh, members in the body. Eventually, it might even be that there are uh, uh, leaders uh, in the church who need to sit on this thing and uh, and and deal with it, and uh, maybe reach some sort of uh, general uh, conclusion. Uh, it's pretty much what we do. If uh, someone in our fellowship were to say, "Look, I'm thinking about taking that job in Spokane." And, you know, it's got these pros and these cons. And uh, what do you think? You go to a couple of your close uh, Christian friends. Um, it could have some rather deep ramifications. So you could even bring in the elders and say, this is a, a, big, a big issue with me. And so um, I really uh, need your help. You could pray about it. You meditate. You can ask some other people maybe who've lived in Spokane, whatever. You reach a conclusion. All right? Someone could say, as a result of that, the Holy Spirit led me to do that. That doesn't hurt a thing. I think we can have a wide toleration. But in a few minutes, I want to talk about how there could be some problems with the view, what is maybe really at stake in, uh, in some of these. And uh, uh, get to that point, uh, point in just a moment. But uh, another side issue before we get to what's at stake. I want to make this point here that uh, two, two prongs. One is that uh, the Holy Spirit issue uh, it has uh, uh, historically uh, uh, cropped up over and over. Sometimes you hear people say, well, it existed in the first century, then there was this big lull, and now in 1906, Azusa Street, in the 20th century or something like that, there's this sudden burst of the Holy Spirit. But no, there's been this kind of thing all along. You'll recall that Tertullian, 220 AD, was all upset with the Montanists. It was a Pentecostal movement uh, in his day. Uh, there had been Catholic uh, mystic uh, movements, even monasticism itself, kind of a holiness-type thing throughout the centuries. 
Luther, you know, pulled away from the church. One of the first things that happened was he had to deal with the Zwickau prophets, didn't he? You know, the people believed that they had the Holy Spirit and uh, he was trying to uh, rein them in. You get to the United States, you had all kinds of uh, holiness or Pentecostal or Holy Spirit-led movements. Uh, it didn't just start around 1900. This has been a, a constant thing. And I have a suggestion. I would argue that um, it's part of our human nature. Now, this is kind of a sensitive issue here, but uh, I teach world religions at the University of Nevada, Reno. Been doing this for many, many years. Now, I've read, uh, you know, uh, Hindu, read Veda, read uh, Buddhist texts, and and uh, Quran, and, and this is what I do. I teach uh, these courses, among many other things. And a very uh, significant uh, aspect that I find is that in each one of these religions, you will have a spirit-type movement. It's, uh, it's throughout the all, and I have a theory as to that. But to begin with, look at shamanism. You find this sort of thing where the elements are communicating through shamans and they have experiences, uh, this sort of thing, and they can, uh, they can work miracles. Uh, they can affect healings and so forth. My wife and I used to live in West Africa. It was a daily affair. Uh, North American tribalism, you see the same kind of thing. Uh, you look at other religions. You got, uh, in Hinduism, you got the Shiva cult. Same sort of thing. Zen is somewhat to Buddhism. You know, what Pentecostalism is to uh, Christianity. In Taoism, in southern China, you have popular Taoism, which is pretty much where the spirits uh, speak uh, to people. Uh, in Islam, you have the Sufis, you know, you've the whirling dervishes. You've probably heard about them. They receive this direct insight. In fact, they're probably one of the most hated groups inside of uh, Islam because they don't march according to the mullahs or the Quran. They march according to this inner uh, voice that they hear uh, from God. Native American tantrism. Uh, as a few minutes ago, Ruachic Judaism. In Judaism, there's this Holy Spirit movement. And there's a reason for that, I suggest. And that's a shamanism is our basic default human nature. We go back to it. It's more immediate, easier. And I'm suggesting that uh, that's the kind of thing that we see uh, in all of the world's religions. It's kind of interesting. Does God work in all these religions? Are the, uh, uh, the dirt, is the, uh, the dervish, are they hearing from God? A question that uh, we should ask. Um, so my point, though, is a few minutes ago that uh, I think we can have a widespread uh, view, but we need to understand that some of this just could be something that's been going on for centuries and is a part of our human nature and is really uh, world uh, worldwide. Well... Let me kind of bring this to a conclusion and uh, see what kinds of uh, questions you might have. The question is, well, if it's fairly harmless, it's widespread, um, what's at stake? 
And uh, I want to give three things that I believe that are at stake and are worrisome. Like I say, much of it harmless, not a problem. But um, one of the things I believe is that it uh, detracts from a study of the Bible. If God is going to lead us individually, then why do I need to pour over the text? Yesterday at this time, I went to a great class and um, talked by this fellow right here, and um, some hard work got done in that classroom, 30, 40 minutes. You know, why have to do that if God is going to speak to us? There was a, a Boston University uh, religious sociologist named uh, Stephen uh, Prothero who wrote a book on biblical illiteracy and how even in evangelical churches the um, uh, knowledge of the Bible is uh, abysmal. I hear that from uh, our Christian colleges that uh, the students coming in are quite ignorant of basic uh, Bible knowledge. Uh, so we've got that problem. Even in our fellowship some of you remember a day in our fellowship when we were serious Bible students. But if we are led by the Spirit, if that makes our decisions for us, if that uh, tells us uh, um, which way we should go, why should I worry so much about plowing through these texts to understand what they're saying? So problem number one I believe that it detracts from serious Bible study. If there's one movement in America that ought to be standing up for serious, responsible Bible study, it's our movement. And we ought to be uh, standing for that. The second problem is something called subjectivism. Let me define that a little bit. Subjectivism is a philosophical view uh, but uh, basically it just says that you can't get past your own point of view. So uh, subjectivism would say, uh, you know, there's my truth and your truth, there's my reality and your reality, and there's no getting beyond that. And so there's just the way that I see it, and uh, the way you see it, and that's uh, the end of it. It's a very, very uh, popular thing in our culture right now. One of the things that I hear a lot about the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit then interprets Scripture for me. Now that's a dicey problem, a worrisome problem. Uh, there are even techniques that I hear about where when people read the Bible for the Holy Spirit to tell you what that text means. Well, there's a problem, you see. A few minutes ago I said... A lot of people's views of the Holy Spirit are not problematic. They're, they're harmless. Uh, it's not a big deal. If a person says, uh, you know, I think I want to take that job in Spokane, and the Holy Spirit led me to do it, that's not going to create a big problem. If a person says, well, I think I'm going to kill my neighbor, you would say, well, now that's a problem, you see, because we have this commandment. This says, thou shalt not murder, you know. Murder is listed in the works of the flesh and those sorts of things. So the Bible then sort of serves as a control on these leadings. But wait a minute. If the Holy Spirit interprets Scripture for me, 
and the Holy Spirit then leads me to do something, where are the controls? It's circular. In other words, you know, my wife's sitting in the room here, but if I were to say, uh, look, the Holy Spirit led me to the place where I'm going to leave you, my faithful wife of 46 years, and I'm going to run off with another lady, or another man. <laughs> Where are the controls? My brothers come to me and they say, well, you know, Gary, Jesus didn't have a, a great attitude about that. <laughs> you know, there are teachings about that. They would say that that would be the wrong thing to do. And I say, yeah, but the Holy Spirit led me to interpret those passages differently. Where are the controls? Now, that's a serious problem. There's a third problem that I want to leave with you, and that is uh, that we need to be careful about the uh, culture leading the church around by the nose. I want to tell you a little story. For some of you in the room, in fact, most of you in the room probably never heard about this, and you're going to think, no. But about um, eight, early 1800s, there was a, uh, well, let me back up a little bit. In the early 1800s, the German culture was at the apex of all civilization. It was scientifically, uh, culturally uh, ahead of just about any place else in the world. Along came a philosopher by the name of um, Hegel, Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel. He was literally a rock star. Now, philosophers aren't usually rock stars, but he was. I visited his office in Heidelberg. Oh, people flocked his lectures. Uh, up the hall, you know, was, uh, were other professors there, you know, who absolutely despised Hegel because he was so popular. <coughs> One of the things that Hegel said, now, hang with me just a little bit. One of the things that Hegel said was, was that um, the mind of God is the collective human consciousness. So if you look at all the intellectual accomplishments of human beings as the world is progressively going along, we as human beings and our intelligence is uh, evolving to the place that one day we will actually approach and become as he called it, the absolute ego or the mind of God. And so the world is all about Geist, spirit. And so what drives the world is this evolving Geist, this evolving spirit. And doggone it, we Germans got there first. <laughs> now you know what that led to 100 years later. But uh, yeah, that's what he taught. Now, he was so popular that he went. He was so popular that German theologians began to reinterpret Paul's statements on the Holy Spirit in Hegelian terms. 
What they said was, when you read Romans 8, that's Paul talking about the Hegelian Geist. That's just absurd. That's silly. One of my heroes is a guy named Hermann Gunkel. In 1900, he published this little work. And when she said, wait a minute, let's go back and see what the Holy Spirit meant in the ancient world. He goes through the Old Testament, he goes through uh, Jewish writings and so forth, the rabbinics, and he says, they weren't talking about Hegel's guys. Now they weren't. Okay, and he took a lot of flack for that. Because he stood against the curve. Now my point is, you and I can, you know, uh, 200 years later, we can look at Heidelberg and we can say, what were those people think. But I suggest to you the same thing is going on in uh, evangelical Christianity uh, with us today as was going on 200 years ago in Heidelberg. There's a term out there, the term is postmodernism. Don't know if you've ever heard of it. <laughs> Postmodernism basically says, you know, we tried science, and science was going to tell us the truth about the world. Well, it's let us down. And so there just isn't any truth. And so you have your truth, and my ha I have mine. Or another word for it is relativism. Truth is relative to persons, places, or times. Please hang with me just a little more. Or another word for it is uh, deconstructionism. So no text actually means anything. You make it mean pretty much what you want it to mean to you. Or lastly, anti-realism. That is, there is no reality. You have yours, I have mine, but there is no real reality. A term we often use for that, and I'm being very brief, is the term postmodernism. But I want to ask you, if the Holy Spirit is going to lead us from the inside and tell us what the Bible says, tell us what the truth is, tell us what we should do, what we should not do, and each person is guided by that, what's the difference? What's the difference between that and postmodernism? One of the reasons I think that the current infatuation with the Holy Spirit is an infatuation is because it re uh, resonates with our culture. It's just the culture inside of the church. There could be other little problems I'll throw out, but I want to bring this to a close. Uh, I think um, there are problems with um, the Holy Spirit's uh, emphasis. Uh, it's going to lead to spiritual elitism. I think uh, we'll find ourselves wasting a lot of time and energy on uh, seeking out the uh, gifts and that uh, has a tendency to uh, distract us from uh, what we really ought to be concerned about and that is serving King Jesus. So I asked my friend, a rabbi in uh, Chicago, what are you worried about? Mm -hmm. You've got this Holy Spirit movement in Judaism. Why are you bothered? He says two things, Gary. He says, 
It's taking our people away from the text. We're not studying Torah like we should. And they're not as concerned with the commandments as they should be. And I said, us too. So thank you very much for being here today. We got a few minutes for questions. 20 minutes maybe if you want. Maybe there are no questions at all. Yes. Um, I read the book. It's been so long ago. I've forgotten the whole thing by now. <laughs> uh, would you want to talk just a little bit about the, the general use of the word spirit in the text and, and the more specific term, the Holy Spirit? Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, it seems like uh, that's something that, that, that might bear a little bit on, on the way the way we look at things when we read the Bible, if we take every instance of the word spirit to mean Holy Spirit in the same sense as uh, as the Pentecostal Holy Spirit that Acts talks about, it, it might lead to some misunderstanding. Well, there's a better man in this classroom to do that than I, but uh, I really enjoyed your class yesterday. Um, yeah, uh, very opening pages of this book the word Ruach means so many different things. So you got Ruach Yahweh, which is, uh, you know, the Spirit of God. But um, then you have to ask the question, is this the Spirit of God actually indwelling someone? So it's, it's a complicated thing. But I think I've found, what, 97 times in the Old Testament where it looks like that it's God. It's not a wind from God, but it's God's. It's the Spirit of God Himself and indwelling people. Okay? And so I hope I'm answering your question. But uh, yeah, I found those occasions. Now, people can be off. I mean, maybe there's another passage that applies, or maybe I got one in there that shouldn't, but you do the best you can. But it looks like in the Old Testament that they had this notion that the um, that Ruach Yahweh, the Spirit of God, and as we learned yesterday, um, you don't have the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. And uh, you have Ruach Yahweh that indwells people and empowers them, usually as a prophet. And the uh, strongest influence on the New Testament figures would be the Old Testament. But during the intertestamental period, then you have the development of this Haruach uh, HaKadosh, uh, the Holy Spirit. And that becomes the term, then, that's used most like most often in the New Testament. I'm sensing maybe I'm not on your question. You think over in Romans 8, the word spirit is used totally separate gotcha. from, from the Holy Spirit. Yes. I think the term Holy Spirit is used there once or twice too, but uh, but you know he, he talks about living by the Spirit and all of that and not the flesh. Yeah. And well, um, I would argue uh, once again, as with everything, it's open to some degree of interpretation. 
But I would argue that you have, uh, in addition to uh, the Ruach Yahweh, the Holy Spirit, you have a contrast in uh, biblical writings between spirit and flesh. And that uh, spirit doesn't always have to be a reference to uh, the Holy Spirit. And uh, it could just be a spiritual uh, plane. Now the problem is, when you read in your New Testament, often those occasions are capitalized, aren't they? English. But I would encourage you to always question that. Could this uh, also be read without a capital? Uh, for example, Galatians 5, uh, so according to spirit, not according to flesh. And so, uh, in other words, you're concerned about eternal things as opposed to the transient. So, yeah. Now, back to Romans 8. In my book, I actually go to the trouble to read Romans 8. Well, let me back up a second. The most ambiguous writer in the New Testament on spirit and Holy Spirit is Paul. The clearest is Luke. Here's our problem. We love ambiguity. We can do anything we want to with it. <laughs> I argue that we ought to use the unambiguous passages to interpret the ambiguous ones. Clearly, the other approach isn't any good. <laughs> and so, um, in Paul uh, 7 and 8, uh, Romans uh, 7 and 8, you could read that uh, very largely as not having anything to do with the Holy Spirit. A few places, clearly. Incidentally, in Romans 8, there have got to be four, five, or six different uses yeah. of the word pneuma. There's my spirit, you know, spirit of slavery. What's that? Uh, looks like the Holy Spirit within us testifying to our spirits. That we are children of God. Then you have spirit versus flesh. It looks to me like you got at least four or five. You can't capitalize them all. <laughs> and so um, you, you've got to deal with that. So I take two or three pages in this tome over here to say, okay, let's read it as if it's uh, almost no Holy Spirit references at all, that it's spirit versus flesh. Look at how Romans 8 starts out. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. What are you talking about, Paul? Two economia, two systems, two planes, two spheres. You got the same thing in Ephesians. The heavenlies versus on earth. Uh, you find this, look at Romans 7. My body, my mind. You've, you've got that all the way through there. There's this conflict between these two realms, the spiritual realm and the fleshly realm. And so it's very likely that what he's saying in Romans 8 is that because Jesus died on the cross for our sin, we've been set free from flesh. Let's follow spirit. Now, could you read those as mainly Holy Spirit passages? Well, not all, but some. Most, I mean, you could. You could capitalize the essence and you could go down through there and say, well, this is a reference to the Holy Spirit. One of the questions that I ask people is, okay, so we do these things by the Spirit. How? Doesn't mean that it's internally driven, does it? If the Holy Spirit was in a prophet in the first century and that prophet told the people 
to love one another. And they started loving each other. Aren't they loving each other by the Spirit? Why does it have to be internally driven? We got a message that's been given to us by God, by the Spirit. And we're following it. So you can read Romans 8. Lots of capital S. Or you can mix and match some. And it's hard to know. There's a guy named uh, Fee, uh, Gordon Fee, who wrote a, a tome on the Spirit. And in a lot of places, he would put a capital S slash little s. P-I-R-T. P-I-R-I-T. And he was like, it's kind of both. And so uh, you got to admit, if something is from God, if it's the Holy Spirit, then it's spiritual. So you do have that very close connection. Is that kind of what you were getting at? Yeah. Not a little bit. Yes, sir. So, Gary, help. Uh, so you said four years ago you, you started out with this Acts 2.38. You know, kind of ambiguous. And so now 43 years later, how is Acts 2.38 playing out in your own life and those that you're going to you know, introduce to Christ as far as what happens? Thank you for that question. Yep. Thank you for answering it. Here we go. <laughs> you know, when you read the Bible, and I don't mean this in a sarcastic way, no. we can't read a verse or two at a time. Right. Now, sometimes when you're preaching, you know, you got to let it rock, you know. But uh, <laughs> if you really want to know, you know, you gotta, you got to read a couple of chapters Time. So uh, Acts 1 starts out by G well, Luke 24, right? Tandem. And so you got Luke 24 where he says uh, to the disciples, he says, Wait here in, in Jerusalem till you receive the promise of the Father, power on high, which will enable you to be witnesses. Okay? And then in Acts 1, he says pretty much the same thing, connects it with baptism of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so they're supposed to wait. We all know the story then. You get into chapter 2, and uh, they're waiting. It's the day of Pentecost. And then there's the rushing of the mighty wind, the tongues of uh, fire and so forth. And they begin to speak in foreign languages, or at least were heard in foreign languages, but clearly a miraculous sort of thing going on here, requiring some kind of explanation. At which point uh, Peter says... This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. That in uh, the later on times, you know, God would pour out his spirit on all kinds of flesh. And let me tell you, there's all kinds of flesh here. Fourteen different nationalities are mentioned, right? In that, it's a reverse Tower of Babylon. And so, uh, <clears throat> on all kinds of flesh. And, uh, your uh, uh, old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions on your sons and your daughters, so forth. This is that that was prophesied in Joel chapter 2, verse 28. And then he says, uh, so we're here to tell you about Jesus, whom you crucified and slain. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that this man whom you have crucified and slain, God has made both Lord and Christ. Now, as we all know, if you'd have been one of his audience, you'd have said, we're in a pickle. What do we do? Which is exactly what they said. And he says, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise 
is to you and to your children. What promise? The same one they've been talking about from Luke 24, Acts 1 and Acts 2. What he's telling them is you're going to get what you're seeing here, the ability to prophesy and work uh, miracles and so forth as per John 2. All right? No general guiding thing inside of you. You're going to get what we've got. The promise that we just received. Now, what does he say there? To you and to your children. Now in the Bible, you have places where it says, for all generations. You have places in the Bible that says that God can, uh, will do such and such unto the fourth generation. I actually think he meant two generations. Hmm. The one standing here and your children. How about all those that are far off? That's the Gentiles. Read uh, Ephesians chapter 2 where he says that uh, God is making a one man out of all of us. Those uh, who are near and those who are far, the Jews and the Gentiles. Ephesians 2. Those who are far off, that's all the flesh. This is for Gentiles too. A remarkable occurrence. So, let me take a minute with that. Uh, because uh, it raises uh, another spectrum. Here we go. Um, we've got to quit reading the Bible. It's written to us. We've got to quit reading the Bible as if it were written to us. The writers there were recording things that happened at that time from which we must extract the principles for all time. Which, incidentally, I've tried to do that too. And uh, <laughs> because it's, it's all related. It's all related. But listen, listen to this. You read the Bible, you've got polygamy and concubinage. But we, we uh, pass over all of that. We got there in that time, they had apostles and prophets. We haven't had any apostles, uh, the apostles uh, in a while. Uh, you have, I know there are people who believe in uh, demon possession and that sort of thing, but that was rampant in that day. Uh, you have uh, Paul saying things like, uh, given the current situation, it would be better not to marry. And I could go on. All kinds of things in the Bible that when we read them, we say, nah, that was about them and their circumstances. You know, uh, trivial ones where Jesus told the disciples, leave the boat there with your father, come and follow me. All kinds of stuff that don't apply to us. And I'm saying, this is one more. Now, there's a positive way of looking at it. I think that's rather discouraging for some people. But there's a very positive way of looking at this. 2,000 years ago, God burst on the scene of human history in a way like never before. And probably never again. Made an impression in human history. And here you and I are today still enjoying the fruits of that. It's a remarkable time. I read the New Testament as a very special time. Got to be careful how we read it. Bob? You just took the wings off my dove. Mm. Uh, so what happens to the Holy Spirit? 
Okay. You guys are lying in wait for me. <laughs> it's related to Trinitarian uh, uh, theology, and I'm not a Trinitarian. And neither was Martin Stone. And he and Alexander Campbell got along just fine. And the, I wondered a few years ago, why all the emphasis on the Trinity? And it's because we've got to elevate the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God in the Old Testament is just God working in a particular way. Now, let's say God decided to work that way again, and he indwelt someone and gave them these powers. Well, there you are. There's the Holy Spirit again. But it's not like there's a third member of the Trinity that's somehow been parked. And uh, so that's, I think, what you're asking. Uh, this study has led me to change my view on Trinity, which has always been a problem to begin with. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, we don't have to be Trinitarian. Yes, Dave? So the Spirit of God and the Holy Spirit are one and the same? Just God. Okay. In fact, let me give you a great example. Wow, you guys are tossing great uh, balls. <laughs> First Corinthians 2. Paul draws a clear comparison between a human being and his spirit and God and his spirit. And he says there, he says, uh, nobody can know the spirit in a man unless that man tell us what he's thinking. You can't know the mind of the spirit in a man unless that man tells you. Neither can we know the spirit of God unless he tells us. But we have the mind of Christ, he said. We have the Spirit of God. It has been given to us. It's been revealed. A clear comparison between a human being and his mind and God and his mind. So a Spirit of God is just a God's mind. <coughs> yes? Gary, I wonder if you might stay in 1 Corinthians for just a minute. And if we have a few minutes. We got maybe, five. Maybe uh, <laughs> unpack a little bit for us. Chapter three and six where it's it, on the surface it seems in chapter three that Paul is talking to ordinary Christians um, and using the idea that the Holy Spirit dwells in you plural uh, to overcome the divisions there and in chapter six where he seems to say your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit and the Spirit dwells in you singular uh, on the topic of sexual immorality I can't. Um, I'm back to what I've said a minute ago. That's reading a passage that apply to them that doesn't directly apply to us. I do not believe that I have the Holy Spirit in me. But they did. See, something really remarkable had just happened. God had <laughs> broken off from the Torah. From the Torah and was now going to communicate to Christians largely, in a widespread way. And they had the Holy Spirit in them. They were working miracles. And they were prophesying and so forth. And so, in chapter 6, going at it backwards, in chapter 6, Paul is simply saying, what kind of people are you? You've got the Holy Spirit in you, and you're not going to live any better than that? Fornicate? You've got to live better than that. And so, yeah, so someone would say, yeah, but how does that apply to me today? Well, I'm still a follower of Christ. I lift up Jesus in my life. 
what kind of person am I if I'm not going to live it? But that passage doesn't apply straight across to us. And in uh, 1 Corinthians 3, was it the temple there in us that you're talking about? Yeah, notice how it's in you. And I find that in the Old Testament, some of you all, okay? Um, I find that sometimes in the Old Testament as well, was the Holy Spirit in Israel. Yeah, when he was, uh, when the Spirit was leading them through the desert, right? And uh, uh, Isaiah, my Spirit was with you, and you grieved my Spirit, and I was with you. Does that mean that the Holy Spirit would have to be in every individual? Or could it just be in Moses? Or could it be in the 70 elders? But God's Spirit is actually amongst us. Mm-hmm. If we've got, if we have the Holy Spirit amongst us, we're a community here, and we're working miracles. And incidentally, if you're working miracles, it's of God. Yeah. And so if you're working miracles, and you're speaking in foreign languages you've never studied before, and if you're prophesying, my goodness, we sure ought to live it. Mm-hmm. I think that's what he's saying. Question one is, what was that writer saying to those folks then? Then we have to be careful when we take the step to us. Is that what you were asking? That's exactly what I was asking. Okay. Yes, sir. Anything else? We have two minutes. Yes, ma'am. Okay, so I think I'm going to open a can of worms here, but I'm, I'm mixed up about, you know, when Jesus was talking to the disciples, and they were talking about other people that were working miracles. And um, Jesus said, I can't remember where this was, but Jesus was telling the disciples, if they're not for us, they're, they're against us. In a sense where these other people are working miracles, they're casting out demons, they're doing whatever. But Jesus and his disciples were working in the spirit of God. Okay, but what, what powers did these other people that were doing these black magic things, or whatever you want to call it, where where was their power coming from? That requires some speculation, but I'll give you a couple. Yeah. Oh, no, sorry, no, 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 no. Oh, yes. Because so, you quoted it backwards. Yeah. Uh, the, these other people were exercising demons, and the disciples tried to stop them, mm-hmm. to which Jesus replied, those who right. are not against us are for us. Yeah, I did say it backwards, I'm sorry, but I, I still am wondering where those other people are getting their power from. Okay. Because it's not from God, obviously. Couple of, couple of, you know, look, there are all kinds of places in the Bible where we say, okay, it could be this or this or this, right? You got a couple of possibilities. Do we know for a fact that everything that Jesus did, he did with the eleven? In fact, there's a place where he said, I, I have other sheep. Now, I don't know if he meant the Gentiles there. I mean, I'm saying, it's hard to know. But could Jesus have done some things, you know, empowered some other people some other places uh, that we just don't know about? There's all kinds of stuff God's done in history we don't know The other possibility is, this could be just like what was said here a few minutes ago. Jesus is saying, leave them alone. They're not against us. Then they're for us. So would that mean that they're really casting out demons? I think based on, what is it, Matthew 12, we'd have to say no. Jesus makes an argument in Matthew 12 that if it's a miracle, which casting out a demon would be, it's God. (laughs) I do not believe the Bible teaches that Satan can empower people to work miracles. 
Well, no, I didn't think so. We all been in the neighborhood. But could there be other people out there then that are empowered by God? Could be. Could be. Just things like that that are just hard to know. Hard to know. <coughs> I'm sorry. Yes, just just one point about that is Luke, uh, or at least one version of that, Luke chapter 9. Um, and the specific wording is he was casting out demons in your name. So yes. this exorcist is saying that the power's in Jesus, right? Not that the power's in themselves right. or claiming some other source. Yeah. And so, and, and we don't know how that went, did we? Exactly. And, and we have the case of uh, the seven sons of Siva in the New Testament, in Acts, <laughs> where the spirits beat them up. You know? So, yeah. There's just a lot of things we don't we don't know. Uh, we're two minutes over. So I'm happy to stay and talk with anybody. Thank you very much.